0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of
1: the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind the scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, you'll hear from Senator Roy Blunt, Representative Val Demings,
2: and Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego. Let's listen.
1: Welcome to Post Lives Election Daily. I'm Bob Costa. Here's where we are. Earlier today, President Trump tweeted, Stop the count. That was as officials in several battleground states continue to tally legally cast ballots. And Democratic nominee Joe Biden moved within 17 electoral votes of being able to claim victory. Per The Washington Post, here at The Post, Arizona, Alaska, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Nevada remain uncalled. But we're all watching that Nevada count in particular as the votes continue to come in this afternoon and be tallied its razor-thin margin. Vice President Biden ahead for the moment. We'll keep an eye on that all afternoon. But today on our show, on Election Daily, two congressional leaders, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri and Representative Val Demings of Florida, plus the mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, Kate Gallego. She will join us to talk about the count in that state. But first, the headlines. The Keystone State is the Keystone While we're all watching the Nevada count today, and that could bring Biden closer to 270, Pennsylvania, with its extended count, remains the political battleground of political battlegrounds in America. But let's not forget, the Senate right now, it's at a deadlock. Uh, we're, We're pretty sure, if things go along as they are, that Republicans are in a good position to keep the Senate majority. But it now looks like there could be two Senate runoff races in Georgia as David Perdue, the incumbent Republican falls below 50% in the count, setting off a possible runoff in a few months. That will be the battle royale for political reporters to go cover in the lame duck period if that pans out. Two Senate races in Georgia in a runoff. And the big picture here, too, is that the election reveals a deeper divide in the country. I wrote with Phil Rucker today on today's A1 about this. And real quick, You look at the numbers, what we're studying here at The Post, Vice President Biden doing very well in suburban and urban areas. He stoked the vote in those areas compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, But you see President Trump so strong in rural and exurban areas. And that divide in the nation, uh, which is almost tribal in its nature, as Cornell Belcher, a pollster, told us, really reflects now the divide in Washington. And speaking of that divide in Washington, I would like to bring in our first guest, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri. He's a member of the Republican leadership in the Senate. He's also a former secretary of state in Missouri. Senator Blunt, good to have you here this afternoon. Uh, Senator Blunt, you heard uh, what I said at the top. President Trump has said stop the count as officials continue to count in different battleground states. Do you agree with the president?
3: Well, I think we have to count every legally cast vote. I agree with the president if he thinks there's a reason in some states that ballots are being counted outside uh, what the law of that state allows, but I don't agree that uh, we can stop the count before the the ballots were cast by people, cast according to state law, are all counted. And uh, in any campaign, if you're ahead, you'd like to stop the count uh, no matter what, even if you think you're still gonna be ahead, At the end of the count but i think every legally cast ballot needs to be uh, counted i think that's the president's view as i understand it in arizona and maybe not his view somewhere else but i don't think we get to decide from state to state uh, what our standard is for how we complete an election cycle
1: what is your view senator of the integrity of this election the washington post per its reporting has found no evidence of widespread voter fraud The FBI director in recent months has testified there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. What's your view on the matter?
3: Well, Bob, I've watched this really closely. As you pointed out, I was the chief election official in our state for eight years. I was a county election official at a time uh, before that. Uh, I've watched this really closely. I do think that the election system itself is more secure than it has ever been, certainly a real difference that the president deserves some credit for from where we were in 2016, when about mid-October, uh, Jay Johnson, the head of Homeland Security, uh, announced to the world and to election officials in America that we were going to we've decided, he decided, that the uh, election infrastructure was critical infrastructure, and the federal government was going to play a new and different role than they ever had before, and state and local election officials just said absolutely not you cannot come in at the last minute and take over this process and the federal government didn't take over the process but in the four years between then and now has really developed a partnership where state and local officials have access to uh, cyber uh, information to security information the ways to monitor their systems that they haven't had before, that doesn't do anything about the false information that may be be out there in the social media, but the election structure itself is secure as it's ever been. And that doesn't mean that in a jurisdiction here and there, there couldn't be some fraud going on. I think you used the term uh, very little fraud. Uh, This is an election where a little fraud could make a big difference, and we don't want to assume naively that nobody is going to do anything wrong. But the election structure is, in, in my view, the most secure it's ever been. And our state and local officials, along with their federal partners, deserve a lot of credit for that. I chair the Rules Committee, which is the committee in the Senate mm-hmm. that has a responsibility for uh, election, uh, election areas. And then I'm on the Intel Committee, and we've had lots of intelligence discussions about what we were doing to make these elections more secure, including fighting back against anybody who reaches out and tries to get in our system or even to provide false information from other countries in our system.
1: That's a pretty even-tempered response to my question, Senator. What's your advice to President Trump when it comes to his rhetoric? Should he cool it down about the election or not?
3: Well, you know, The people on the other side didn't cool it down for four years. I fully understand his frustration. And and by the way, he did an incredible job putting so much of this campaign on his own back and the energy and determination of uh, particularly the last couple of months and particularly the weeks after he uh, got out of the hospital from having COVID were extraordinary. Seven, uh, I think 15 events in the last 72 hours of the campaign. He put his heart into this, he deserves to have uh, a sense that the final count is what the final count uh, really was. Uh, And uh, he had four years of the other side not accepting the result of the last election. I don't think it's unreasonable for him to be uh, frustrated that suddenly he's supposed to just decide that there were no problems and he would accept everything uh, and uh, not have the kinds of constant resistance, the FBI did it, the Russians did it, the uh, Electoral College was the problem. Uh, I, I think for our friends on the other side to say, the president needs to accept the results, they need to look at where they've been for the last four years before they give a lot of advice about anybody accepting the results.
1: What will you do as a US Senator or a Republican leader if President Trump is defeated but he does not accept the results and he does not concede?
3: Oh, I'm, I'm confident that he will. And I've heard him say that in the last month, that, uh, that he wants to have a fair count, a fair process. I'm chairing the inauguration again this time, and I'm confident that on January the 20th, the winner of the presidential election will be sworn in. And once again, we will have every former president that could possibly be there uh, the uh, the Congress, the Supreme Court, sending that message to the world uh, that this is how a democracy uh, acts, and uh, I'm confident the President will do what he needs to do. And I fully understand uh, how he has invested himself in hoping he's going to be sworn in for a second term. And there are lots of reasons that uh, he should think that the foreign policy achievements, the economic achievements. Uh, that he uh, has uh, dedicated himself to have been important. And let's see what happens before we start hypothetically thinking about what's going to happen between now and January. Fair
1: enough, enough, Senator Blunt. But you did say just now that it's the, the inauguration. And I remember you four years ago, right there on the dais, your central figure in the transition of power in this country, helping to manage the inauguration. Let's say President Trump wins re election. How important would it be for that image of the country, the functioning of democracy, for Vice President Biden to attend the inauguration?
3: I think very important, and I would expect him to be there. Um, you know, for several elections now, the way the election process has worked out, the, the person that lost the election was sitting right there on the platform with the person. That won the election, whether it was Vice President Gore uh, in the the Bush Gore election or or, or Secretary Clinton. uh, She and President Clinton were there at the last inauguration. Obviously, John McCain as a senator was there. It's a great message to send to the world. And I think, as I recall the numbers, I think about 43 million people watched this live, and tens of millions of other people all over the world watch the inauguration and we send one of the greatest messages we send as a country Uh, and uh, i I would expect uh, vice president biden to be there if he's not elected or president trump to be there if uh, uh if he's not elected and i think that's an important moment and it teaches a lesson that we can't teach as effectively any other way
1: so if you flip the question if president trump is defeated. You said you expect him to attend, but would you request as a Republican leader running the inauguration for him to attend?
3: Yes, yes. I, I don't think I'd have to do that. But uh, you know, the, the president, President Obama, President Trump and I rode from the White House uh, to the Capitol together in the last inauguration. One of the great moments for me as a elected official to get to be part of the three of us in the car as this transition of power occurs. Um, but I, I'm, let's, let's see what the results are before we spend a lot of time talking about who should do what based on the results. And uh, again, I'm going to repeat our friends on the other side couldn't. It's hard to imagine they could have been much more diligent in their efforts not to accept the result of the last election Uh, And they should think about that as they talk about what President Trump should do uh, if he happens not to be the person to be sworn in for uh, the office of president uh, this coming January.
1: Senator Blunt, take us a little bit behind the curtain, if you could, as you look ahead to the inauguration in January, regardless of who's putting their hand in the air and taking the oath of office. We are in the middle of a global pandemic. Will there even be a crowd encouraged to assemble on the National Mall, or will this be more of a private or quiet ceremony at the Capitol?
3: Well, Bob, there are a couple of reasons that we haven't decided that yet. We've uh, The committee, the six-person committee, Senator Klobuchar, Senator McConnell and I from uh, the Senate side, and uh, uh, Congressman Hoyer and McCarthy and Speaker Pelosi from the House side— our, our first action was to move forward as if we were going to have a, a traditional inauguration. I think it's easier to scale back than it is to scale up. Um, we don't know everything we'll know uh, in a few weeks, but we clearly know that this is not the normal circumstance. Uh, I think visiting after the election is settled, or maybe even in maybe even sooner than that, with the the they'll. The, person who's elected or likely to be elected or could be elected uh, if we don't have a firm sense on this pretty quickly uh, and s- say one of the things we want to do is talk about what you want and then let's see even though uh, this part of the inauguration is up to the Congress this the what happens at the Capitol is up to this committee chosen by the Congress uh, what what you do with all of the other things uh, of the inaugural activities is that separate committee that is paid for by donations. And uh, you put that together. Uh, this is a committee that ultimately the Congress will decide what happens at the Capitol as we host the president being sworn in. But what would you like to see happen? Uh, and um, you know, based on the two campaigns we saw, we might have two very different views of what that inauguration would look like to, uh, to try to work around uh, as, as we do that. But I think everybody wants the inauguration, want the inauguration to be safe, obviously want it to be secure. It's a it's a great lesson that we teach on inaugural day, but it's also a moment of real vulnerability uh, for our government as we create this attractive uh, target of right. uh, this, this coming together of so many significant uh, parts of the American political story. And we'll, we'll see.
1: I've been uh, reading the history books a little bit, Senator, and now the inaugurations face the National Mall. But for many years, they faced the Supreme Court, and that's a smaller area. I was wondering maybe Senator Blunt and Senator Klobuchar would think about that as an option. But let's move for a moment uh, to the Senate races. The senate You have two possible runoffs now in Georgia, as you know, and the Senate looks like to be a deadlock. Uh, What does this mean uh, for the chances of a stimulus in the lame duck?
3: Well, I'm I'm never very optimistic about the lame duck. I, I did see uh, on yesterday that uh, the majority leader, Senator McConnell, said he'd like to get a stimulus package put together and also would like to see the spending bills done. Uh, those would both be a good thing for the country and for whoever is about to become president. I'd like to see us have some more cooperation here on a scale, on a a, a bill that makes sense uh, for now, that we can create consensus around and get that done. Um, I think the lame duck is always a a more challenging moment than we think it's going to be. People trying to get themselves wrapped around the results of the election. You know, eight years ago when President Obama was being inaugurated, I argued vigorously that We should, the Democrats should help us get the appropriating work done so he could start with a virtual clean slate. That didn't happen. I had, I was advocating the same thing four years ago. Uh, That didn't happen. I'm going to say again this year, let's get this year's work done this year. And let's let the new term of the president start with as clean a slate as we can give them to, start their their own discussion of what they wanna see happen. I hope we can do that. Um, I think it's a little early to sense that. uh, Usually uh, it's harder to do things in the lame duck than anybody thinks it's gonna be.
1: Final question, Senator. You probably saw a report in Axios earlier today that Senate Republicans are prepared to block many of uh, President Biden's nominees. Should it be a President Biden? Uh, is that the case? You're in the cloakroom. You're you're in touch with the, all the Republican senators. If it is a President Biden, I know you hate these hypotheticals, but if it is a President Biden, are you ready to work with a President Biden or are you ready to block his nominees?
3: Well, we only have one president at a time. And the, the, the reason the Senate is in the process is that they have to be considered as a partner in that process if you want to have uh, things happen. Uh, I, uh, Senator uh, Langford and I advocated a rule change that we got done this year that dramatically shortened the time of a debate that a nominee had to have for most of these positions. Still 30 hours for the cabinet and Supreme Court judges and circuit judges. Almost everybody else is two hours and why did we do that uh, on a partisan basis? Because the Democrats were insisting on 30 hours on every nominee, and I think the average time being used in that 30 hours that had to be set aside was 17 minutes. Uh, so the change that we required for this president after the first two years just finally gave up on having the, the accommodations that the Senate had traditionally created for these these kinds of nominees, uh, that change is going to benefit uh, this president whoever sworn in and others in the future uh, but uh, there, there's a Senate role to be played here and uh, we'll play it but I think we also should remember we have one president at a time uh, that president uh, particularly with jobs that end when the president leaves uh, we need to think about how to get those jobs filled I wish our friends on the other side would have worked harder to work with us to fill the jobs that uh, President Trump needed to get filled uh, four years ago and right up until now.
1: Senator Blunt, appreciate your time this afternoon. Hope you come back to Washington Post Live sometime soon. Be with you, Bob. Thank you, Senator. Now we'll be joined by Democratic Congresswoman who represents uh, a Democratic congresswoman who represents Florida's 10th congressional district. She, was, she is a fierce supporter of Vice President Biden. Representative Val Demings, welcome to Washington Post Live Election Daily. Thanks for being here.
2: It's great to be with you.
1: So what happened in Florida? I know you were working hard on the ground for the Democrats, but to see it go to President Trump and to see him make inroads with Black voters, Latino voters, what's your blunt take on what happened?
2: Well, Robert, one thing we always try to make clear in Florida, and we've watched at least for the last uh, 20 years in Florida, it's always a closed state. Usually within one percentage point, it can go either way. And look, we realize that we've just got more work to do here on the ground in Florida. We've got to make sure that we are talking to as many voters as possible, making sure that we are addressing their specific needs and not making any assumptions about what voters because they're in a particular voting block or zip code or in a particular ethnic group that they share the same values and and concerns. And so what we do realize in Florida, as we really have for a while now, we thought we have had done enough or done, you know, enough to get by. But apparently not. We still have a lot of work to do here on the ground and we're committed to to doing it.
1: Were were the president's comments about socialism during the campaign effective in a place like Miami-Dade, where you have a a strong Cuban-American population?
2: You know, I have to believe that they were. um, Some polls that were taken show that 70 percent of Cubans certainly supported the president. About 66% of Puerto Ricans supported uh, Vice President Biden. And so, you know, we do believe that the president's rhetoric about socialism, although not true, um, certainly had an impact and an influence. Uh, Apparently, we did not do a, a good enough job to fight back against that. But. You know, we've got to shake it off now. We're trying to close out this presidential race and move forward and look to the next election. Even though the next elections will be in an off year, we know that every election counts. And so, as I said, we still have a ways to go and some work to do.
1: And it seems like the Republicans, Representative, are going to keep up that rally cry. I was listening to Senator McConnell's speech on Tuesday night. He kept using the word socialism. So that's a Republican talking point that seems here to stay but you're very uh, on the front very much on the front lines of the racial reckoning in this country the debate over policing as a former law enforcement leader as well as being a member of congress right now what needs to be done in the democratic party in terms of message policy proposals to make up ground on that front uh, not only with black voters uh, but with white voters in places like the west coast of florida
2: Well, Robert I thank you for that question and look the bottom line is every community deserves to be a safe community regardless of the color of your skin or your ethnic background and when you talk to every community as I have as a career law enforcement officer what they will tell you black brown and others is that They don't wanna see less police. They actually wanna see more police because when you start cutting budgets and personnel that they understand as a vulnerable community, they're the ones who will suffer first and suffer the most. And so we really need to make a concerted effort as a caucus to really bring the police and the community together, to not talk about them as if they are two separate entities, the police are the community and the community is the police. And so it's going to take both to get where we need to be. We also have to understand and, and I think make quite clear that we know the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers are good, decent people who do the job correctly. But we also understand we've had some problems. We need to look at who we hire. We need to look at diversity. We need to look at policies. We need to look at training. And while we deal with police, misconduct working with our community and legislatively we also need to address some of the quality of life issues that cause decay in communities in the first place when we look at the police we've still got to look at poverty we've still got to look at wages low wages we've still got to look at our unemployment numbers we've still got to look at the number of young people, black and brown, who drop out of school. We know that every 26 seconds, a child drops out, drops out of school. And if we look at our prisons around the country, we know that the majority are black and brown, and we also, Robert, know that the majority are high school dropouts. And so we have to do a better job. Let's work on police misconduct, but let's deal with those quality of life issues. And I do believe we can make great progress if we do that.
1: Let's turn to the House Democrats. Uh, You are as inside as you can get. You're close to Vice President Biden, close to Speaker Pelosi. I've been hearing, talking to my sources in your conference, that House Democrats, frankly, are rattled by the Republican gains in the House. What's the mood behind the scenes?
2: Well, let me say this. The work that we need to do right in front of us is for the race to be called for the president of the United States. And we know in spite of all of the distractions, the lawsuits that have been filed, the rhetoric that is out there, the number of people showing up at, where the votes are being counted, Vice President Biden will soon have enough electoral votes to become the next president of the United States. He has several paths to do that. The president does not. And so we need to get that work done as well. As you know, the Senate, we're still looking at those numbers as well in the Senate. And look, within the House, we've maintained our majority. Yeah, we all have some work to do in this country. I believe that we will do it, but the bottom line is we are a caucus and we have to operate like a caucus. There is nothing wrong with looking within our caucus to see how can we make improvements, You know, what needs to be improved, what does not the strengths and the weaknesses, but let's get the work done right before us right now. We lost uh, some amazing colleagues who were in tough districts. Let's not fool ourselves or act like they were not. They were in tough districts. We still have some work to do, we'll get it done, but I can't wait until the presidential race is called. That's the beginning of the work ahead.
1: So as you go about that work and make that effort representative, you do have to wonder who's going to be the leader of that. Do you support Speaker Pelosi for another term uh, as Speaker holding the gavel?
2: I certainly do. You know, I remember when I was sworn in in 2017, we were not in the majority in the House. And if you remember, the President's first priority was to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act and take health care away from over 20 million individuals. We were not in the majority. But I watched. Speaker Pelosi, my first term as a freshman member, really very strategically, very carefully, um, make decisions to fight for, unify us as a caucus. And as you all know, the Affordable Care Act is still the law of the land. You've seen her at the White House and the lack of leadership really show exceptional leadership to try to get an infrastructure package through that would help bring millions of jobs to the American people. You've also seen her usher through some of the largest relief packages in the history of our country to get checks and resources into the hands of the American people to protect those small businesses that are suffering and hurting around our nation. You never know how good a leader is until you see them lead during tough times. We certainly have not seen that in the White House. Total absence of leadership, we've certainly seen that in Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I certainly, based on the, the leadership that I have seen her exhibit during tough times, not doing calm times, but tough times, I fully support her uh, keeping the gavel.
1: Understood. So put aside the Speaker race, Speaker Pelosi likely positioned to win again. Do you are you at least open to a reconsideration of House Majority Leader, House Majority Whip, conference chair? In other words, should the Democratic leadership beyond Speaker Pelosi at least be given some thought in terms of changes in the coming
2: weeks? You know, every cycle, Robert, as you well know, we vote on House leadership. Every cycle we do that. But I also believe that we need to, as John Lewis reminds uh, reminded us all the time, let's keep our eyes on the prize. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have a presidential race that we have been waiting for for four long years. We have over 9 million people who have contracted COVID-19 as we deal with the public health pandemic. We have well over 230,000 people in this country, which is the greatest country in the world, who have lost their lives. We need to finish the work right before us, and that is to elect Joe Biden as the next president of the United States and Kamala Harris as the next vice president of the United States. Then we can get on the road to recovery and begin the process of healing this nation, bringing us back together, coming up with a unified, strategic, scientifically-based response to dealing with the virus, Once we get the virus under control, we can get our economy back on track. And so I'm going to do as John Lewis told me to do, keep my eyes on the prize. Let's finish this race.
1: What are the chances of a stimulus bill during the lame duck? And will the speaker move pretty quickly on another round of legislation?
2: You know, I heard Senator Blunt say that it sure would be good, and he thinks it's possible. I have to believe that as well. Uh, Robert, we, we, as I indicated before, the American people are suffering as a result of this pandemic. They've lost their jobs. They're worried about keeping a roof over their heads and food on the table. Many small businesses have closed. Too many of them have closed their doors permanently. And so we really have the ability, I hope that we have the will, the political will, to come together and get a relief package done for the American people. And let me just say this, it's been five, uh, going into the sixth month now, since we passed the HEROES Act. And so we know that it's it's, it's sitting on the majority leader in the Senate's desk uh, with no action. We can get this done. And I hope that when we return back to Washington, that that will be our number one priority.
1: What about the Biden cabinet? One, are you open for consideration for a position? And two, uh, who should who else should be considered?
2: Well, I certainly won't get into that. I'm trying to keep it. Well, oh, so
1: you're not closing the door?
2: No, let me say. No, when you ask who else should be considered, I'm not getting in uh, to that. Oh, okay. L- let me say this. One of the things that I have tried to make clear um, during the vetting process and, and beyond but is that I want to support uh, President, then President Biden, uh, in the best way that I can. We do know that he is going to need as much support in Congress as he can get. Now, the good thing is he, unlike soon to be his predecessor as president, um, has the relationships. Uh, has the ability to work effectively across the aisle to get things done. Believe me, Robert, as you well know, there is plenty of legislative work to be done uh, in the House and in the Senate. We have about 350 bills that have been sitting in the Senate waiting for action. And so what I do know, back to your question, is I want to be as helpful to the administration as I possibly can be. But I'm going to go back to we need Joe Biden declared as the winner of the presidential race, then we all can start worrying about or considering or discussing uh, who will be a part of his cabinet. Regardless of where I am, I would continue to work hard. I will work hard for his administration and continue to work hard for the American people.
1: Uh, Final question here, Representative. Knowing, of course, you, you want to see the presidential race concluded before you start thinking about anything else, we'll just concede that point gut check 2022 you're now on the national radar with the the vice presidential search you're you increasing national profile are you thinking about a run for governor
2: I'm thinking about Robert uh the work I, as you know we were also in the house i was just reelected um to the house to serve my third term and you know the road has been um A very humbling one but also um, one that's full of hope uh, with my constituents in congressional district 10 and I am NOT going to get ahead of myself about what the next road is or the next job is or the next plan is Uh, I'm going to stay focused and keep my eyes on the prize on the work that I am doing right now I think my constituents deserve that. I hear from them every day about the issues that they are facing, especially as a result of COVID-19. And so I want to be there for them uh, 100 percent, not half the way, but all the way.
1: Representative Demings, we'll leave it there. Uh, Appreciate you stopping by and having this conversation, and we'll see you soon.
2: Thank you so much. You take care. Stay safe.
1: You too. Now let's go uh, to the Sun Belt from the Deep South to the Sun Belt and welcome the mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, Kate Gallego. Mayor Gallego, thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: The Washington Post has not yet called Arizona, but what is the latest in your state in terms of the count?
0: Fox News and the AP have called Arizona for Biden. Vice President Biden is leading by about 70,000 votes. There are still about 300,000 ballots outstanding, primarily in Maricopa County, which is the home county for Phoenix. I would say the mood among Democrats in Arizona is better than the mood among Republicans, but everyone is eagerly awaiting the updates as they come.
1: Was the AP wrong? Fox News wrong. I mean, is it possible, Mayor, that Maricopa County could save President Trump?
0: It is still mathematically possible, but it looks right now like it will go in a different direction. The nation may have remembered uh, two years ago, watching for results from Arizona, there were several uh, Democrats in statewide offices who on Election Day were losing. And then six days later, we had Senator-elect Kirsten Cinema. So it took us quite a while. But if the last election cycle is a good indicator, these what we call late early ballots have trended towards Democrats overall, although certainly Maricopa County is a purple county. Maricopa County was the largest county in the country to vote for Donald Trump in the last election cycle. And as we sit here today, it is the largest county in the country to have flipped for Vice President Biden.
1: That's fascinating, Mayor. And I believe Maricopa went for Senator Cinema uh, two years after going for President Trump. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. And we're about so, 60% of the population. So generally, as goes Maricopa County, goes Arizona. But there have been two anomalies, I think, where someone has managed to have such a lead in rural Arizona that's overcome our very populous county. Help us
1: understand, Mayor, why that is. The Sun Belt, we hear a lot about it. We write about it, at The Washington Post. You hear it in the national news. Democrats want to make some gains in the Sun Belt. Arizona, Maricopa, in focus. What's going on in the political landscape in Maricopa? How is it a place that goes for President Trump so much in 2016, and then goes to a moderate Democrat, a more centrist Democrat, at least, in Senator Cinema? Sinema? What's, what's the political... What are the political currents in Maricopa? Help us help us understand these numbers and, and the uh, the driving dynamics.
0: Phoenix has been the fastest growing city in the country, and we sit in the fastest growing county. We've had many people moving in from California, Illinois, and other traditionally Democratic communities who have continued that Democratic affiliation. We've also seen a pronounced increase in Latinos voting in our community. Almost doubling between 2016 and 2020. That's a result of a lot of people working hard to organize, to engage. It's driven by Latinas in particular, and young people have come out in a big way. We've seen a 55% increase in 18 to 29 voting. So a lot of changing demographics here, as well as some very high profile endorsements. Our former GOP Senator Jeff Flake and the beloved Cindy McCain going for Joe Biden made some. Conservative voters feel comfortable that they could make a, a vote that felt a little bit different for them.
1: What was the McCain factor this time around? The, the, the late senator, uh, not of course on the campaign trail, his wife though, uh, making her endorsement. Are, are there, what's the McCain voter like in your city and how did they move?
0: Senator McCain is beloved here in Arizona. People talk about his legacy all the time. Uh, particularly some of our more moderate voters, really like the get it done attitude focused on results and country over party. So the McCain endorsement was meaningful. We also have a very strong veteran and military community in Arizona. And when Cindy McCain talked about her family's military service, her husband's military service, I think that was meaningful to a lot of voters, the way the president, President Trump has spoken about Senator McCain's military service has been concerning for many Arizonans.
1: Why were Democrats disappointed on election night about the Latino vote? You said the Latino vote has been uh, a a positive uh, point for Democrats in Arizona, but nationally, uh, many Democrats were uh, taken aback by how it's trending toward Republicans in certain areas. What do you make of the results especially with the Latino vote?
0: I think it's very important to look at the Latino vote across the country. Our Latino community is very different than the Latino community in Florida. Um, In Arizona, our largest percentage of the Latino community is of Mexican heritage, although our community like others is very diverse. Latinos in Arizona went for Biden by a two to one margin. So that is a very different result than we did see in, for example, the Cuban community. But here it seems that the Latino community is going to be essential to the Biden margin.
1: What is the Latino community uh, like in Phoenix, in Arizona? You say it's different. Of course, it's not maybe Florida has a lot of Cuban Americans. What about Phoenix? What about Arizona?
0: So Phoenix is a 40 percent Latino community and the Our community with Mexican heritage is by far the largest. It is a very young community in general. So our Latino community is much younger than Maricopa County in general. Uh, Traditionally, our younger voters had not come out in the ways that they did this year, but a variety of different efforts led by the Latino community itself has changed that, as well as some pretty significant investment from Tom Steyer, NextGen and other groups There was a huge push to register high school students who were eligible to vote. And that's something I I had not seen before. There was also a lot of engagement with our Native American community in a really organized way. And it seems to have changed the outcomes of many elections, including our presidential vote.
1: If Vice President Biden becomes President-elect Biden and President Biden, does he have some work to do with Latino voters President Trump has made a a point of attacking the Obama-Biden record on immigration regarding DACA and other issues. What would your advice be to the vice president, should he be president, about reaching out to the Latino community and bolstering Democratic support?
0: I think in our Latino community and just generally in Arizona, we would love to see forward motion on immigration policy. I don't talk to anyone who thinks, I mean, it's hard to find people who think the status quo is working on immigration. So it would be great to see some early achievements from Vice President, future President Biden in that area. But our Latino community cares about a lot of issues. Healthcare has been very important. Um, Our education system is very important. And so I wouldn't ever paint the Latino community as focused on a single issue. You have to work hard on multiple issues to earn that vote.
1: Democrats nationwide were disappointed by the Senate races. Uh, for the most part, they were hoping to take the Senate majority. They might still do so, uh, but it's, it's very narrow right now. It's in a deadlock. Yet when they look at your state, Arizona, and Democrat Mark Kelly, uh, they see a ray of sunshine politically, uh, some hope. What's the lesson, the takeaway from Senator uh, the Mark Kelly Senate race in Arizona?
0: Mark Kelly was Mark Kelly is a dream candidate for Arizona. He's very independent and results focused, very inspiring story. His parents were police officers. He worked his way up through the military and then through the space program. So it's a real American success story. And we also. All love to be the home state of Gabby Giffords, so that that marriage and that personal touch and their advocacy together to take a horrible personal experience and. Turn it into a vision for a better healthcare system. I think that touched a lot of Arizona hearts. Um, so I guess the, the lesson for Democrats is it really matters who the candidates are and how they can tell their story about what brings them to running for office.
1: When you look at uh, Mark Kelly and Senator Sinema, do you see two people who would be moderate Democrats in the Senate? Is that kind of the pathway to keeping power in Arizona or? Do they also have progressive sides to them? How do you see that political positioning, their personas, as they uh, grow their base in Arizona?
0: Arizona voters seem very focused on results. What bills can you pass? How can you improve quality of life? Senator Sinema has pushed so hard on COVID-19 protections this year. She's been a strong voice for taking public health seriously. If there's another headline coming out of Arizona, it's that Elected officials and candidates who took COVID-19 seriously did
1: very well on Election Day. Speaking of the pandemic, being a mayor is a challenge during a global pandemic. Based on our reporting and others, Phoenix seems to have, you know, they had a a spike. Arizona had a spike. What's it at now in, in your city? And are you worried about the winter season, though, of course, it's warmer out there in Arizona?
0: Arizona was a national and international hotspot this summer. We were one of the last states for our governor to go to stay at home and one of the first to reemerge from stay at home. We still do not have some basic safety precautions at the state level, such as a mask requirement. We do have one in the city of Phoenix, but we had breaking news today in Arizona. One of the county health departments in a community that doesn't have a mask requirement has had to go to virtual because of an outbreak tied to a baby shower. I think that's a lesson to all of us. It seems that in Arizona, a lot of the increase we've been seeing recently is tied to smaller events, often with family or coworkers, where it's trusted people you already know, and so you assume you can let your guard down. But I think the Yavakai County Health Department is a, a good reminder for all of us. With Thanksgiving and other holidays coming up, You can get COVID from people who you've known all your life, and and we have to be careful. Uh, We've, in this community, reported a 16% positive rate, so we are concerned about the trend.
1: You just won, Mayor, a decisive re-election victory in Phoenix. Congratulations on that. And we've talked a lot about the political trends in Arizona, but is it more about the management of the pandemic uh, when it comes to your race that reflected your that led to your big win. How do you see your own political profile and how it went on Tuesday?
0: During my time as mayor, we've had some huge steps forward on community safety, major expansion of advanced industries such as semiconductor manufacturing. But if there was one issue I heard about over and over again, it was COVID-19. My opponent really criticized me for having too many precautions. But what I heard from voters is they want to take public health seriously. We have a lot of jobs tied to industries such as tourism that have not come back yet, particularly our wealthiest tourists who love our, we have pretty amazing weather right now, but they are not coming back. And it sent a message to me that a good economic policy is putting public health at the forefront. It appears that voters agreed in my race and many others Um, in some of my neighboring Republican cities, the candidates who had the strongest message that COVID-19 is a serious problem, emerged victorious.
1: And with all respect, Mayor, to your fair city, I've been to Phoenix many times. I I love going there because I'm a baseball fan. And I go to see spring training when fans could actually go to spring training and enjoy it. And my first impression of your city was it was pretty older in terms of the the population. People moved to Phoenix to retire, but they have a young mayor. Uh, what is your own position as a leader of this major American city say about the power of the younger vote in Phoenix, in Arizona, and perhaps even nationally?
0: I'm going to have to give you a better tour of Phoenix because we actually are younger than average as compared to the United States. We have great burgeoning sectors in healthcare, bioscience, and technology startups. Arizona State University, which is in the greater Phoenix area, is the number one college degree producer in the country. So we have a lot of great workforce, uh, of relatively affordable housing and it's been a neat economic mix. As our community has grown, it has really been working families that have powered that growth. So I don't know that I'm a huge anomaly as a, a mom in her 30s in terms of the demographics of Phoenix, although certainly different from many of my predecessors in this particular job.
1: And final question here, Mayor. A little bit of a downbeat question, but it's it's very real. Uh, as much as Phoenix is changing, and this country has different uh, currents in it uh, that people find positive in both parties, it also has a darker side. And you have faced threats. Uh, other Democratic governors have faced threats. You, as a Democratic mayor, have faced threats. Uh, are you worried about the political culture in Arizona, even as Democrats do better? Uh, what are your concerns? on that front?
0: I think Americans are hungry for elected officials to work together across party lines, and I hope to be part of the solution. Although some issues have gotten very political on a variety of issues like expanding our airport, protecting our water supply, we get unanimous bipartisan agreement at the city, and I think we're going to have to deliver a lot more of that to help repair some of the strong emotions in this country. It's been a it's been a tough year, and we've had a lot of very vigorous debates. Policy debates are healthy, but I hope we can keep it to words and not any threats of violence or actions.
1: Mayor Kate Gallego of Phoenix, Arizona, really appreciate your time this afternoon. I mean, you are in a, a place that every political junkie, every reporter, is watching closely, and you'll be at you'll be on the front lines as uh, the parties clash and evolve in the coming years. So thanks very much for being here.
0: Thank you so much. Good to see you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.